So, Professor Gaines, aside from your clinical work, uh, you're also an innovator. Um, yeah. And we know that you've been involved in a number of IR devices, which are currently available on the market. Um, how did you get involved in all of that in the first place? About uh, 15, 20 years ago, I've been advising a medical device company. They were interested in looking at uh, endovascular management pain. We would do a lot of good stuff in that area. And then I'd moved into carotid stenting. And a couple of the people who I knew in that device company had left. One was a very good uh, manager with, with great links in banking. And the other one was an engineer. And at the time that I was doing carotid stenting, we clearly had a problem with embolization to the brain at the time that we were angioplasting and, and stenting. And I was in discussion with these two guys and we, we chatted, we came up with the concept of cerebral protection and we then started working together. So, and, and, and that triumvirate was inspirational. We, we bounced ideas off each other. And it worked well at the very early stages of a startup company. So when you've got a device, well, when you've got a clinical problem and you want a device to solve that problem, then you need, I think, principally three, three people. You need, you need the medic who understands the problem and understands the techniques. Uh, you need an engineer. Probably the most important person is a very smart engineer. And then you need somebody to front the organisation who is capable of raising funds to uh, support whatever development you're going to do. So I had, I had a clinical problem that needed solving and I knew the people to help me come up with a solution. And I think that's, that's probably the secret for success of any medical device. There are, there are devices out there like IVUS, intravascular ultrasound, which is a great technique, but it's lacking a use. And there are a number of things out there uh, we should develop the wrong way around. You should always start with a clinical problem and then come up with a solution. So you don't just develop the devices because you like inventing? No, no, you have to start with a clinical problem. And we set up our first uh, device company in Galway. Galway University have now developed a programme for training and educating engineers with purely an interest in medical device companies. And we had a couple of their engineers come to us a few years ago and they said, what we'd like to do is just spend some time in a hospital seeing what problems uh, surgeons and interventional radiologists have. And it was, it was fabulous to watch them because most doctors, if they have a problem, they're very adept, they're very uh, clever at working with the tools they've got to get around problems that they have. Mm. But these two engineers stood back and said, well, you've got the problem. Rather than using your current materials, why don't you just develop a new idea, a new concept? And they went away with some fantastic ideas just by watching clinicians struggle with the tools that they've got. So what are the devices that you've developed? So the first one was a cerebral protection system to stop stroke happening at the time of cross-scenting. We just... Uh, sold a company called Novate, which is a bioconvertible IVC filter. Most IVC filters placed now are removable because mm -hmm. there's a limited time that, that any patient is at risk of having a pulmonary embolism. The problem is that certainly within the US, and if people are honest here too, a lot of those filters don't get removed when they should do. Yeah. And even if they're not removed, they, they have complications which are innate to their design. In order to remove them, then filters have to have very little contact between the filter and the 
wall of the inferior vena cava. If there's a lot of contact, you can't get them out because you get tissue growth. So they have point contact. But the problem with that point contact is that the legs then penetrate through the wall of the inferior vena cava. Uh, and most of the time, that's not a bad thing, but sometimes it can be a very bad thing. That's definitely one of those moments when I'm assisting in IR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the yeah. consultant says, just pull a bit harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if, if it does penetrate, it's a nightmare for some patient. It goes into the aorta, goes into the spine, pancreas, bowel. Um, but also, they're very fragile devices, they're removal devices, and they can fracture and embolize to the lungs. So the bioconvertible filter is a stable frame that doesn't penetrate the wall of the cava, and after 60 days, it simply opens up. Very cute idea. Uh, it wasn't our idea. A surgeon in the States came up with the idea, and he came to us. We thought it was a great idea, so we took it forward. So we've just sold that company uh, to a company called BTG. Uh, and our third device is a helical stent for the superficial femoral artery. The superficial femoral artery doesn't just stay straight when you bend your knee and you bend your hip. It shortens and twists, and this stent, unlike straight stents, is able to cope with that shortening and twisting. But more importantly, because of the helix, the blood going through it has to swirl, and that swirling blood increases the wall shear stress, and that wall shear stress prevents restenosis and prevents atherosclerosis. So we've just finished trials in the States. It's just got approval for sale in the States. And hopefully soon we're going to sell that one. Do you think that it's something that a lot of interventional radiologists think about? Or do you think that most people just get around with what they've got? I think interventional radiologists are very, very good spatially and with their hands. And they can get around most problems with the tools that they have. A lot of improvisation goes Yeah, a huge yeah. amount of improvisation. The problem is it could be a whole load better. So, so I think we have problems that we get around uh, with the current tools, but occasionally we have problems that we don't have anything correct for, like when we were sending MLI to the brain and needed cerebral protection. And then, then you need to start to collaborate. It, it is interesting. In, in certain countries like the US and Israel, the doctors there, it's second nature for them to set up device companies, to work with industry, to come up with new ideas. Uh, and it's, it's just part of their culture. It isn't in this country, and it should be. Um, so you have an idea in your head. Um, yeah. And then if I wanted to bring an idea to fruition, what yeah. do I need to do? Uh, I think there are the, the first thing you shouldn't do is go to a big uh, medical device company, because they will probably largely just take your idea and you won't get any thanks. So you should do two things. Uh, Either come to somebody like me, who... Who won't take my idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, who, who, who already has contacts in the medical devices world, who's been there and done things already, and has a small group of people who I can pass the idea past. So have your idea, perhaps do a little bit of IP work first to make sure that nobody else has developed yeah. it already. Perhaps also think about the market, because no matter how clever your idea is... If it's not going to make money, then nobody's going to be interested. So if you've got a great idea for solving one patient's problem every year, frankly, that might be clever, but it's not going to be of any interest to anybody. So, so think about the market. Just make sure some, somebody else hasn't done it. If there is a decent market and it is unique, then either come and see somebody like myself uh, with contacts in the industry who can then spin it around other people to see if other people think it's a great idea. And if it is, we can take it forward. Or there are a number of what's called 
incubator companies. And essentially, they're the same thing. So you can contact the incubator company. They'll give you a letter of confidentiality, and then you can move forward with them. And if they think it's a good idea, then they can do the basic work uh, to take it through, hopefully, to commercialization. So you on the lookout for new ideas all, all the time. time? All the time. Yeah, yeah. It's hugely enjoyable to do. You start to work with a bunch of people with hugely different skill sets, and you learn a lot just by going through the process. So how long does it take from, I suppose it varies depending on the device, but from an idea to market, how long are they? Yeah, with, well, with, your, with your Embo Shields. Yeah, with the Embo Shield. <laughs> yeah. So from, uh, from recognising the clinical problem to coming up with a few ideas, the, the perfect out is to have your startup company bought by one of the big medical device companies. And the time from originally coming up with the concept to being bought by Abbott, I think it was something like seven, eight years. Right. So do you create a startup company for a new device? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's the standard procedure. Yeah. Yeah. So once you've got your idea, then then those group of people, the, the, the fantastic engineer that we work with a guy called Paul Gilson, he's not only a great engineer, but he understands all the IP issues too. Mm. <clears throat> so then you start to work with individuals who will protect your IP, bring in engineers, you can start to arrange to do bench testing, animal work, etc. And the earlier that you're able to sell your idea and startup company on, the better. And um, if you had a startup company for one device, would it not make sense to use that same company for another device or... No, because no. because if that if that company then goes bust, okay. so only 20-30% of startup companies eventually become a success. So you do want to keep them separate. Um, have you had any failures? So far not. So, oh, so, far, uh, <laughs> so far we have moved on two companies and hopefully we're about to move on our third. So we're looking at three out of three at the moment. The hurdles now are... People are very risk-averse. Since, since financial crisis, financial flows have been restricted. So investment banks um, who are supposed to take risk with new investments are risk-averse, and so are a lot of the medical device companies. So currently, you can come up with a great idea, and you can struggle to get investment, and you can struggle to be bought. Hopefully, that's going to change, but that's part of the advantage of working with somebody like our current CEO, a guy called Chaz Taylor, who's very smart and he understands financial markets and he's able to bring in investment because you do need a lot of investment mm -hmm. to take a good idea through. So obviously as an interventional radiologist, you get used to handling the equipment that you've got yeah. at your disposal and you, you, I presume you would develop a certain level of knowledge about the creation of these and the materials that they're made from. <clears throat> but when you come to actually developing a device, how do you go about learning about the, the, the kind of the raw materials and things that are used. Yeah, I don't, to be honest. Uh, I, think, I think that's part of the benefit of joining a team. Mm. So the engineers are hugely knowledgeable about that sort of stuff. Um, so, as I say, it, 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 is, it is about teamwork, it is about close collaboration, it is about mixing skills. So, for me, my repeated phrase is, it's just an engineering problem, go on. <laughs> so that's why you have hugely that's why you have hugely talented engineers because they can get round the problems that you have. So you go to them with a concept, with an idea, and a rough sort of yeah. Well, go to them with a with a problem. They can give a problem idea, or you can go to them with a 
with a with a problem and an idea, and they can come up with a uh, with a concept. But the engineers are absolutely essential to that whole process. Okay, um, so looking to the future now, um, we know what you, how you feel about the future of diagnostic radiation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the future of IR? Yeah, I I think it's crazy. There there will be other specialities who work in parallel, there'll be other specialities who want to take over some of the ideas. But interventional radiology has been massively smart at coming up with new ideas. And a horrible phrase, but it has been organic in that it can move from one concept to another. And if you look at how it's progressed over the short period of time that I've been involved with it, it's it's not only we not only have new devices within the, the, the same arena but we've moved into treatments that in areas that were never even thought existed before. So, you know, all the fantastic oncology work is incredible, yeah. absolutely incredible. So I think interventional radiology will continue and develop and move into new places. Yeah, I think with IR, you're always on the right side of history, aren't you? Yeah. Because the move is always to towards less invasive procedures. Yeah, so totally. And, and always going to be well placed to perform the procedures and it's so technology driven yeah yeah and of course there's there's all the neuro stuff as well which i know very little about (laughs) but but i mean that is extreme and and technologically is fantastic some of the devices there are great i have to say the ones i've looked at there's huge room for improvement but i think i think the the neuro work huge respect to the neuro interventionists uh they're massively skilled but there's, there's also vast room there for technological innovation. Okay, um, and what about um, some of the challenges facing IR? So we often hear about um, workforce issues. Some of the on-call rotors are quite um, poorly staffed. And yeah, yep. um, clearly radiology is in a crisis, does need more, and the same applies to interventional radiology. But I think a unit that is attractive both in terms of the type of work it does, but the individuals in it as well. So if you've got a, a happy unit moving forward, then people will always want to to work there. And um, you've sort of already answered this um, by setting up the um, Sheffield Vascular Institute. Yeah. But what would you do to improve the image of radiology? I think it... I've no idea, to be honest. Right. I, I think that that is a huge issue, and it comes back. It's like, how do you improve the image of a pathologist? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because, because we don't have that recognition by the public. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have that, if the public haven't got a clue who you are and what you do, it's very difficult to improve the image, because frankly, you don't have an image to start off with. So I think, yeah. I think there's... There's a huge amount of work that needs to be done uh, on public recognition, just of, of you know of diagnostic radiology as well as interventional radiology. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we need a perhaps we need a good television program. Yeah, or fiction. Or... <laughs> I don't know what the plot would be. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so that's all we have time for today. So thanks for listening to part two. Thank you again, Professor Gaines, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, yeah, so we hope you have enjoyed Radcast in 2018. Uh, good luck to those trainees taking the uh, FRCR2A examination this month. Uh, we hope you all have a lovely Christmas and next year we've got more interesting content coming for you from the world of radiology. So in the meantime, you can listen to our previous episodes on anchor.fm slash radcast. And if you like them, then please subscribe. 
Uh, we're also on uh, the Apple Podcast app and Spotify, so you can listen and subscribe there as well. And for more updates, uh, if you're on social media, you can find us at Radcast Podcast on Twitter and at Rad.cast on Instagram. Thanks very much. Thank you.